Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Universal International Studios' Beatrice Springborn about her upcoming slate, relationship with Peacock and approach to global partnerships. Amazon Studios' Georgia Brown on her content strategy for the year ahead and Discovery's Miriam Lopez-Utazu, Simon Downing and Claire Laycock discussing the nuances of programming for their linear networks and Discovery+. Plus. Beatrice Springborn is Interim President of Universal International Studios, the division within Comcast Universal Studios Group, which has ownership stakes in companies including Canada's Lark Productions, Australia's Matchbox Pictures and UK-based working title films, Carnival Productions and Heyday Films. She's also President of Universal Content Productions, the studio focused on making shows for the US, having joined the business in 2020 following a six-year stint at Hulu, where she led comedy and drama development, co-productions and casting for series including The Handmaid's Tale, Normal People and Little Fires Everywhere. Springborn now has oversight of operations behind shows including Channel 4 and Peacock comedy We Are Lady Parts, Amazon's Hannah, Netflix's Clickbait and new BBC Kids title Dodger. She spoke to Jordan Pinto about what's next for Universal International Studios, its relationship with NBC Universal's Peacock, industry verticalisation and scope for global partnerships. Beatrice, so to set the table for this conversation, could you give us a slight breakdown of your role in Remit and just slightly help me to untangle some of the web of acronyms that um, I think <laughs> yeah, sure. that we have here? Sure, sure. So um, I am president for both UCP, which is Universal Content Productions, and UIS, which is Universal Universal International Studios, which sits under um, Universal Studios Group, which includes those two studios, UTV, which is Universal Television, uh, and our unscripted group as well, which is called UTOS. So a lot of acronyms, but to make up a larger studio group of, um, of amazing studios. Okay, fantastic. Um, let's first talk about the Universal International Studios, which of course is based in the UK. Um, has a large network of UK and global production companies and talent deals. Um, As you've shifted into your new role uh, of interim president of UIS, can you talk about how you're working with your network of talent and production companies? Sure. I mean, you know, I'd come in originally to run um, Universal um, Content Productions, and what I found was so amazing about the Universal infrastructure is that we have library, we have all these amazing deals, we have formats, we have internal buyers. And so it's, it was a smooth transition for me to be able to look at that way of um, using the universal resources across um, international as well. And then be, to be able to work with all of the local talent in all of these different territories to be able to take advantage of all of that has been really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, any Anyone that you can spotlight there, either for the um, either on the, t- the production company side or the the talent side? Absolutely. I mean, across the studio, we have Matchbox and Matchbox in Australia, Lark in Canada, and then in the UK, we have the amazing David Heyman's company, Heyday. We have a Working Title, which I know you guys are all familiar with, and then we have Carnival. Um, so we're able to use these great production companies who've already made shows that everybody's aware of to continue to sell shows in those marketplaces, as well as producer deals with very, you know, curated uh, producers like, you know, um, Tom Cohen, who produced um, uh, 
uh, Hannah for us. Um, he was also originally an executive at, at our international studios group. So he knows the ins and outs of how to access all of the product here and all the IP. Um, we also have a deal with Mark Freeland um, and, and, um, and those are our, our um, EP deals within the UK side. Fantastic. Um, as we've been hearing all week, and I think this has been a theme, maybe it's always a theme, but uh, I think especially this week, um, access to talent has become um, increasingly competitive. And yeah. to, a, to, a, to a greater or lesser degree, it feels like, you know, I heard some, some people say it's a, it's a bit of a joke right, right now how, how competitive things are and how, how the way things have escalated. How does being part of the Universal Studios group give you that access and the infrastructure and the talent to compete yeah. at the highest level? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of a few things. I think it's our library. I think it's the fact that we do have internal buyers with Sky and with Peacock. I think we have, you know, again, we have access to all of this different IP. We have an IP group that sits within the studio. We do formats. So an example of that is we're doing Superstore Mexico, which is a Spanish language uh, format that we're doing with Dopamine, UIS, and UTV. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the things that I keep focusing on with the group is we're a studio. There, there are millions of studios out there, right? As everyone's probably heard from it at Content London. And the way to work with talent, it's not just through money, right? I think in the consolidation of all of these different companies, the one thing that's been forgotten or the biggest thing that's been forgotten is talent relations. And talent relations isn't just some buzzword. What it, what it means is being value add, right? So just because we finance their deal, just because we finance shows doesn't make us valuable. What makes us valuable is the relationships that we have with them. There are specific executives here that they want to work with or they feel give great notes or they feel have a good point of view or we're bringing them material or articles or something that is adding to the experience, right? And I think that that is something where we talk about, and I know you and I talked about this before, but it's, it's not, it is a business, but the word content I think is overused. We're talking about storytellers who want to be spoken to in terms of stories and storytelling. And the more we're doing that, I think the more we're going to attract talent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, bitch. So I'm remembering you, you have a real disdain for the word content. Is that not correct? <laughs> not if yet. And by the way, it is part of universal content. So, um, so you know, I I'm not a fan in that. I feel like it it commodifies storytelling in a way that I I think is you know sadly I see some ways it's going out the window at places where we just look at it as a business versus going back to the heart of why we fell in love with it and why we're doing it. And I do think that that, that does help create great shows. Um, let's drill down on some, some examples of um, some of the some of the ways that you packaged IP. Uh, are there any projects that you feel are particularly illustrative of um, of the ambitions of uh, Universal International Studios? Absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest success story from this year was Clickbait, which was um, you know a, a, an amazing collaboration between David Heyman and Tony Ayers, who has a deal with Matchbox, and was a huge hit for for Netflix. Um, you know, I'll speak to one that we're putting together now, which we'll be announcing some talent attachments to, which is Safe House, um, which is a universal feature title with, um, I think you're probably familiar with the film with Ryan Reynolds and Denzel Washington. Um, we really see there's an opportunity to do a, a reimagination of that title with, uh, in, a, in both local language adaptations, so using local talent in different territories, um, so using it as a format, but also doing a reinvention of that as a as a um, as an ongoing television show. Mm-hmm. 
Um, when you have a company like Universal that has such a massive, uh, such a massive library, and I think that the the, the real, the intro reel was a you know perfect example of the vastness of it. Um, how, I suppose, how's, how do you decide what original IP you, you want to pursue, and how do you how do you look at some of the library library uh, um, pieces of IP and that are probably very attractive, and you think, well, we could just pull this out, but also you need to be kind of judicious when you're doing so. Yes, I mean, we've had a couple pieces of talent come to us and say, you know, ask to, to remake very big pieces of IP um, or, you know, I'd say projects that were originally great films, right? And so I think the question is always, what gives this a reason to be now? You know, it has to be a modern and contemporary take. There has to be a lens on it that is adding something or a world that you can expand on, um, whether that's through, you know, different characters, additive characters. Is there a storyline that wasn't explored there? Is there a new political bent or something that's happened in the last 20 years since the film's come out that makes it relevant today? Uh, I think probably relevancy is an overused word. Um, we're always looking at how is this going to add to the conversation in terms of what was last done in this space or what was last done in this arena. Um, and then we just talk, you know, we talk about whether the title is is so beloved that trying to remake it, what what's the upside, right? Sometimes there isn't an upside in trying to to remake a certain title. There have been a few titles that we've had we've had big debates around whether they would be worth uh, worth rebooting. Mm -hmm. Are there any pieces of IP that you can you can tell us that people always ask about? Because I, I was talking to another studio, uh, another studio exec, and I, I won't name names or the project, but they were saying, my goodness, at least once a week I get a call about this particular property. I always tell them no. But yeah, any, yeah, any examples I, from your I would side? say there's there's a lot of, you know, the, the Amblin titles. So Jaws is one that comes up a lot. Or there's, you know, the big big kind of Steven Spielberg titles or, um, you know, everyone because of Universal Studios loves the monster universe. So there's a lot of questions around what we can reboot in the monsters universe. And so it's a constant conversation with Universal Pictures, what we're doing on that side um, and how we can collaborate in a way that is, you know, both additive to the original IP. Um, but we're also looking to, you know, do reinventions of that and not just rely on IP. I would say, you know, IPs, when we're looking at kind of reinventions and reboots, it's probably about 10% of what we do, but we really want to look to more original ideas. And that can mean books as well and adaptations, but I think we're, you know, I think there can be a fatigue around doing too many um, reboots of things that people have seen before. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned there that it's about 10% of what you do. Do you try and do you try and make sure that you're not dipping into the, the well too many times, as, as it were? Yeah. I mean, it's it's opportunistic depending on a piece of talent who has a great take. You know, I don't think we're gonna we're gonna stop if someone comes to us with a great idea. We're always gonna be open to it. Draws um, the series. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, but I would be nervous to do that. I think it'd be an exciting challenge. But it, you know, it's such a beloved film and it was done so so incredibly well. I, I think it'd be hard to to redo. Um, but, you know, we always have the conversation about, again, what makes this a reason to approach it now. And there have been titles, you know, in my career there that, two, you know, you look at it two years ago and it's not relevant. And then two years later it is. So it, it's a constant conversation around the library and also what's being developed on the feature side. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I think I and the team are much more excited to be doing things that are either original ideas or 
based on books. I've been lucky to have a lot of success in my career working on book book, book adaptations, and I think that's you know uh, still remains an amazing way to do to do television. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Universal International Studios has te- tentacles in, in in many parts of the world. Whereabouts do the, ma- the majority of the shows originate from? The majority of the shows originate in the UK um, because that's where the majority of our production companies are. And then in the US, then Australia and Canada uh, with Lark. So we are and that we are looking to expand that imprint into other territories and into, um, you know, more, I think, diversifying our talent slate and, and our overall deals and our first looks. Mm-hmm. Um- Okay, so following up on that, are there any plans to look at further acquisitions or investments in production companies that fall under the UIS umbrella? Yes, uh, you know, M&A is not out of the question. I think that's, we're looking to do a combination of, of all um, and expand on what we've already done over the past few years. I think that it, that's incredibly our, our remit here and to bring in some, you know, new talent to work with the deals that we already have. I think what's exciting here and one of the reasons I came to this company was to be able to work across the studio and to have the flexibility to use deals that are at, UTV and UCP and across international and make marriages there to work uh, to create shows. And I know that that's been exciting for the people that I've been talking to about coming in and joining us. I know you, you don't speak for Peacock. Um, I, I'm going to ask you, how, how does Peacock fit into, this, into, into your strategy? And then maybe also if you can, if you can explain um, UIS's um, relation to Peacock. So Peacock is one of our main internal buyers and, uh, you know, we, we are, we want to be providing shows to them and to be a main supplier for them. I think the thing that we, we always emphasize to our talent is while they, we are a main supplier to them, we want to sell everywhere. I think that is the thing that also drew me to the company was a lot of, you know, these major um, entertainment companies are, are putting up the walls and not allowing their talent to sell outside. We are really invested in a business that is both supplying to Peacock and Sky and selling everywhere. And I think that is an exciting place to be in. It just creates more creative diversity and um, perspective that a lot of the other companies don't offer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Peacock is, um, you know, and you and I, we spoke, to, we spoke a little bit about this, but um, they, are, they are a new streamer. What was also exciting for me was to be able to come and help brand their this this service. And, you know, having been at Hulu when The Handmaid's Tale launched, I know that for a creator to be involved in being able to brand something with a with one big show or with a few big shows is an amazing opportunity that I don't exi- I don't think exists in the marketplace right now. You mentioned that some some, some other studios or companies they, they are put, putting the walls up. Do you do you view that as a kind of counterintuitive strategy? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that also for networks the best slates are created by having a diversity of studio involvement as well. And, you know, studios have different approaches to how they put together shows. It creates a different, you know, um, series. And to be able to have access to that, I think, is just a better way to do business. I understand the business reasons, but I also think that you can run a business by collaborating with others. Are there any titles through Peacock that you would like to explain because there was one the one in particular that we talked about there is it's the amazing we are lady parts from nita manzoor uh which we have we did with c4 and working title and um i just love this show it's it's a really fresh take on a female band i came in after that show was developed so i give credit to the team at working title for working with nita on that i think 
you know, we all loved the show after we saw it coming in, which was when I first started. And I just, I love that it is a female friendship show set with a band that you're learning about, you know, a, a Muslim group of women, but not told through just religion. It is, you know, the, the, backdrop, the background and the context of it. And, you know, I think Nita is an incredible voice and an example of how we want to work with talent. We are very much in the business of also talent discovery and talent um, platforming. And she's just an amazing showrunner and creator that we want to keep working with. Um, and I think, you know, it's an example of, I think everybody's talking about probably local for global, but there is um, it, also this opportunity for shows that are you know, considered just local that will be incredibly appealing to a wider audience. And, and I think this is an example of that. And we hope to do more shows like it. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps an awkward question, my next one, but here I go. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I, know, I know you don't speak for Peacock, um, but I wanted to ask you about a statistic that came out earlier this week. It was a, a piece of research from um, Oliver and Olbaum Associates. And it said that around 80% of the people surveyed um, did not believe uh, that Peacock would be around in five years' time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I understand fully that you don't speak for them, but I would also be interested to, to yeah. get your thoughts on, on, on that. Happy to. I mean, I, you know, I, I was at Hulu for seven years, and we were, at that point, one of the last streamers in. And I do think that where the opportunity is, just is based on my experience there, and there was challenges coming in last. But what I think was an opportunity and what I think, where I think there's a huge opportunity for Peacock, and one of the reasons I came here to help be a supplier for them is sometimes when you're the last in, you also are able to see what others did great and what others did poorly and take advantage of that. And I do think, again, there is a massive opportunity for talent to help brand them and be and through one or two shows in a way that is incredibly exciting and doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I am someone who welcomes that challenge and, thinks, and really looks at it as more of an opportunity and, and hope to prove that statistic wrong or prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's not always good to talk about other, other shows from other, um, from other networks or from other streamers, but when, when you were part of Hulu, obviously The Handmaid's Tale was, was perhaps one of the shows that you're talking about that um, changed, changed things for that, particular, um, for that particular service. How do you think some of the upcoming shows for Peacock could perhaps become like the, you know, the original series of, of the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to two that are on the UCP side as well. Um, one is, you know, um, we're doing a, a scripted version of, um, of Joe Exotic that is with Kate McKinnon and John Cameron Mitchell from Hedwig and the Angry Inch that I think is, it's, again, it's one of those reasons, like, there's already a documentary, why would you make a scripted show? This is such a fresh take such a great kind of look at these two characters who in many ways mirrored one another. I don't think that the documentary, I mean, it was called Joe Exotic. This really looks at also Carol Baskin and the way that, you know, she's the rivalry worked with, with Joe and her psychology and Kate McKinnon is just brilliant in it. And I just, I don't think we've seen her play this role before. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. Um, we're also doing a show called The Resort with Andy Ciara, who did Palm Springs for Hulu. That is a take of, um, it's, it's in the same vein as Palm Springs, so kind of magical realism about a married couple who go away on a vacation and are, um, and are uh, 
um, ha- discovering a podcast and a crime and solving it while trying to solve their their own marriage problems. And it's just really fun and fresh. And the the directing is going to be great. And the casting that we're going to announce is amazing. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a, it will be an amazing show for Peacock in terms of, um, of their imprint and hopefully we'll bring in a ton of subscribers. Beatrice, so you, you mentioned that you're still relatively new in the role um, and at the company. How many of the shows that you, you have maybe personally greenlit have started rolling out and maybe when will we get a, a flavor of the fuller, the fuller slate? Probably, pro- you will start seeing some development announcements in the next, I would say, month. Oh, wow. um, there's, you know, we just went out with a, with a package with, with David Heyman um, that, that's incredibly exciting and with a big book that we'll be announcing soon that we just sold, um, or we're about to, to do a deal. We had a, a numerous offers that we'll be announcing. Um, and then a couple things over the next couple of months, but you know, what we're really looking to do is have a slate that is intentional. Um, I am not a fan of just servicing projects. I really want this company in general and UCP and UIS to be you know, um, doing best in class. I keep saying less of best, which I don't know if it's grammatically correct, but it, but it sounds good. So, um, (laughs) so, so, you know, and I think of anything, this, this period and this pandemic has taught us to be wise with our time. And, and we really want to be again, just intentional, find the best projects, not take out a million things, care about the things that we take out and, um, and be additive to the talent. You mentioned being involved in the branding of Peacock from a content perspective. Um, Are you able to expand on that? I'm happy to speak to it because it's one of the reasons I came to this company. I I think to have been a part of, you know, The Handmaid's Tale and other shows at Hulu that helped create the brands of originals there as a creator. And this is a lot of the reasons we've we've been able to do some of the deals, some of the talent deals lately that, that have closed. To be able to have a show be the definitive show or the the set of definitive shows that brands and network is in a very exciting place to be that I don't think exists in the marketplace right now. And so if you're, you know, if you have the opportunity to do that um, with Peacock, I do think that is a is an advantage to being here. Um, and there is still that opportunity. And one of the reasons, again, one of the reasons that I wanted to be here and certainly something that I think is attractive to talent. Um, at what stage do you like to see projects at? This is one we always uh, get from producers. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a fan of hearing ideas. I'm a fan of reading articles. I read a ton of books. Um, so again, I think it's 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 a mix of of ways that projects come in. Um, you know, I'm most excited when when other people are passionate about something. Or again, there's a thematic or uh, a way in that we haven't seen before, which I know everybody says, but sometimes that's just born out of someone's personal attachment to it that, that makes it come alive. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can just ask about the, the structure of UIS as well, at what point do projects make it to you? Does it, does it, is it filtered through the production companies and up to you, or do projects sometimes just land straight straight directly on your desk? It's both. It's both. It's a combination of both, you know, there, and there's not any wall up. It's we all have access to one another. We're all communicating about projects. You know, there's there, we all have our own, you know, projects that we're passionate about. But then we're also working with the production companies on the projects that they have that they've brought in, but also trying to bring them things we think are going to be. Um, you know, that's going to work with their brand or that their individual executives are going to be excited about. Um, so it's a, it's a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm sure. So you're probably already programmed up to, I know whenever I ask about like the year ahead, people always say, well, I'm kind of already programmed out until the year ahead. Um, as you look slightly beyond that, are there any, are there any things that you might, might be looking for or any gaps in the, I don't know, even, even in the development slate where you think it would be cool to have X, Y, or Z to look at? Uh, we're not programmed up. So I know I've just probably opened up the floodgates and, and you know, we, we're upstairs still spending um, development money. I'm always, and I, I, this is probably the cheesiest thing to say, but I'm always looking for really good new takes on love stories. Um, there's a book that we just read that is a um, intergenerational love story. So how do your parents and your grandparents' love stories affect you know, your own relationships, but told in a very cool kind of, I keep pitching it in the most lame executive way, which is sort of, this is us meets normal people. <laughs> but, you know, looking back and forth between um, generations and um, and at a very young love story. And I, I do think, um, you know, people are, everybody, yes, we're looking for fun, joyous stories, but I also think that people, you know, really do love a good love story and there are different ways to tell that. And so I would love to, I would love to, to hear more of those. Mm -hmm. um, another question from the iPad. Given the international remit, will Universal be expanding their slate um, into some local language series originating from Europe or other territories? Yes. Yes, we will. And we're starting to meet with, and that's going to be opportunistic. You know, there's a, a huge set of producers that we've been meeting with and, and companies that we've been talking to um, and really trying to do a portfolio across different territories, but really dependent on, on you know, who we connect with, who wants to work with us um, and who has the right projects. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you have any timeline for when we might start seeing the fruits of some of those conversations? I think uh, I, I think it's, in the next three months, I would say, when we will start, you will start to hear announcements on those. Mm -hmm. So uh, an exciting three, three months coming up on the, on the announcement. Yeah, a busy and exciting three months. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but another one from the iPad. What content trends do you see in the industry in the next couple of years? Oh, oh man. Um, I mean, I really try not to just follow trends. Um, I've had more success in my career not following them. Um, but uh, I, I really hope that we do focus more, like I was saying, on doing not volume or throwing things against the wall and just servicing things, but, but being intentional, spending our time wisely, not feeling like we need to be running around crazy and being, you know, working all the time to, to do quality work. Um, and valuing that sometimes, you know, having a real life outside of work also informs the work we do uh, day to day and probably makes the shows we do that much better. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm focused on creating that, continuing to create that culture here um, and leaning into that because I do think that you see that the results of that in the stories that you're telling, mm -hmm. not the content, the stories, <laughs> the stories that you're telling. Mm -hmm. That, that is a really good point. Not really, an, not really like a, an industry or creative point. But if you work, yeah. all, if you work all the time, then you don't really get a chance to do much living and, you know, no. experience. I find that the time I'm most creative is when I'm not, you know, not when I'm on vacation or reading books or thinking about, you know, what what excites me. And so, I, I do think the thing that you know is hard and we've lost as we've all been working really incredibly hard over the pandemic is just the the time to be, you know, thoughtful and creative. I don't think. 
I think the hardest thing for creatives is to be creative on demand and even as executives to be creative on demand. So I think to give ourselves the space and time and energy to be intentional and creative is, is really important. Mm -hmm. Have you been working from home since you, since you started in, in the new role or have you been back? I have, I'm in the office today because I wanted the internet connection and my dogs not to be barking in the background. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yes, we've, uh, we're, you know, we've been, I've been in the office a few days a week um, on, on the lot, which is, which is really fun, but, um, but mostly at home as well. Mm -hmm. um, just back to the point you were making about be being selective with, um, with what you were kind of put, putting your time and resources into. Is the development slate relatively small then and quite um, concise yeah, and, or tight? And continuing to be, I think, you know, curated and we're having conversations about what that looks like and what we need. And, and again, I, I am also a fan of, you know, if there's... It, it should not be dictated by me or my taste. I really want the executives on the team to be bringing the things that they are passionate about and love. And I know from you know my my past experiences that a lot of shows that I did not understand as an executive, or maybe even for my age, became huge hits. And I think you know as as an executive, you need to see that there's an audience for it, but it doesn't necessarily need to be something that you are in love with. Um, and so we really look to everyone to kind of bring their their passion into that. Um, but yes, we're trying to just, you know, be focused. I'd say focused and intentional is, is what we're really doing with the slate. Mm -hmm. And then my, my final question, as you look to the year ahead, what are some of your strategic objectives as you, um, as you kind of, I suppose, make your mark on this role as well? I think, you know, again, continue to expand the slate. Um, continue to, and, and I mean, expand it just in terms of the relationships that we have. We're going to do more deals. I want to diversify our talent roster. Um, and I think, you know, again, just create a culture and continue to create a culture here that, that leans into storytellers um, and, and being value add in terms of the material that we're bringing. Thanks. Thanks very Great. much. And thanks Thank you. Give a hand to Dick. Beatrice Springborn speaking with Jordan Pinto. US e-commerce giant Amazon has been rapidly expanding its studios business in Europe over the past few years, continuing to produce throughout the pandemic with 50 original series now on the slate overseen by regional chief Georgia Brown. The exec, who was among the keynote speakers at C21's Content London last month, remains on the lookout for scripted and unscripted projects, with female-focused young adult properties and movies among her priorities for 2022. Brown spoke with Hannah Flint about the challenges and triumphs of the past 12 months and her content strategy for the year ahead. Here's the first part of their conversation. Listen, Georgia, let's establish this. Europe is a vast territory. Give us a breakdown of the development and production teams you've been building on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first of all, I should just say that's such an exciting promo for us because I think the last time we were here, our poor PR team, every time we do these, we meet and we go, what shows are we going to talk about? We haven't made anything yet. <laughs> so we keep rolling out the grand tour. And it's amazing in there to see just the breadth of all the incredible stuff coming out of Europe. It makes me very proud. And that's see. just in the last two years, Exactly, right? you know, yeah. easy. Um, so, so what's interesting is we have we have really been scaling. And I know we've talked a lot about, you know, every time we come on these panels, we're building, we're building these local teams and we're finally kind of getting there. In the last kind of three years, we've built out teams across seven territories now. Um, the poor Nordics we class as one, but as we all know, it's really a lot more than that. Um, these are all of our heads of territories that have come in to run the original content teams. 
It's worth saying just up front, if you want to get hold of any of us, it is just firstname.surname at amazonstudios.com. That's how we love to receive all of our pitches. So please get in touch with us. Um, and it's been a massive period of growth for us since we last spoke. I mean, just since lockdown alone, we've hired 85% of our current staff. So just the scale and the, the kind of speed at which we're growing right now is incredible. And I think it's just testament to, to my point, we started to make shows. We're actually launching shows and the response has just been incredible. So we're just going to keep investing back in. So it's very exciting. I can imagine. So your teams will be creating for the Prime Video platform, which is reaches more than 240 countries and territories worldwide. So what differentiates the Prime Video audience from its rivals? I mean, what do Prime Video viewers like to watch that cannot be seen anywhere else? It's a great question. I don't think it's necessarily about the audience being different, because a consumer I know, I watch multiple different services, platforms, broadcasters, and really me, probably like all of the people watching Prime Video are following the content, right? Um, I think what really differentiates us, which is the reason I was so fascinated by Amazon in the first place, is that we're not just a streamer and quite often we're kind of bundled in with the streamers. And it's true, you know, the original content, you go in and, and you're streaming it. But we offer so much more than that. Um, we're really an aggregator of content. I know many of you know this, but if you go into the Prime app, you can access a multitude of content across so many different layers and facets, whether that's books or you know, live streaming, it could be live sports, it might be TVOD, um, music. So I think one of the big differentiators in the USPs for us, which is again is why talent quite like working with us, is that we just have a different level of communication and connection to our audience because we can kind of talk to them on so many different layers um, and all of that adds up to such a richness of experience. So I think that's something that we have found um, really special in terms of how we're trying to operate and think about our originals programme. So, since you were last year, it was 2019, am I right? Um, what does all this development, all this achievement, what does that mean for your role and your vision for, your, for Amazon Studios Europe, basically? It's, very, it's a great question. We, when we started out, the vision was very clear, and what I'm really proud of is it hasn't really shifted. The vision was to put the spotlight back on local production, and if you cast your mind back kind of five, six, seven years ago, as someone who came from that kind of international space, there was such an obsession with the US at that point. You know, it was a real cast, it was kind of a sign of making it if you had a US co-production or a US buyer on board. And actually, whilst lots of the world became obsessed with America, Europe was really busy just co-producing amongst itself, really self-sufficiently making some incredibly high quality content. And I think what platforms like ours and others have done is really kind of give them a bit of a gateway to the world because there's some amazing talent and content being made here, which stands up absolutely to these big budget shows that we see out of the US. Um, so the vision again was very clear to put the spotlight onto the production and the incredible production that was already being made here and just give that access to the world and get the, the world's audience have access to what we were creating. And then secondary to that, you know, in terms of the infrastructure of how we decided to build out our teams, it was very clear to me I wanted, you know, a, a French producer to walk into a French office in France and speak French submit their decks and their scripts in French, deal with French BA, French legal, 
um, all the way through to delivery and not have to talk American, right? Because we all talk very different languages and it's a very different business. Um, and, you know, thank goodness to all of the people in this room who've held our hands on, on that journey because in the early days, we did have to use a lot of our US infrastructure and support um, and that had challenges. Um, we've also learned a lot from them. But now I'm really proud to say that in the majority of our territories, um, probably aside from our two new expansions in the Netherlands and the Nordics, it's an entirely local team. So you're getting such a, a local experience when you walk in the door and that's something we're all really proud of um, and as I said it's taken a long time to hire but we have just really very passionate local executives on the ground now. So you mentioned uh, moving to expanding into Netherlands and Nordics recently any other countries or regions you have in mind? Soon? Oh, it's Amazon so you know, watch this space <laughs> I think it's worth saying you know we're very much driven by our customer and we talk about that a lot um, you know, where there is a demand, we would look to fill uh, that gap. But right now in Europe, these are the territories that we're focusing on. Okay. So when content creators are pitching to Amazon Studios Europe, what type of programs do you want from them? I know you've mentioned that the potential email addresses that people can <laughs> use, but what is the best way if you're pitching a program to approach the company? I think, first of all, just real basics. And I know, again, I've said this to lots of people before, but if you are pitching something to us and you're sending something in an email, you can imagine we receive an awful lot. Um, I look at Johnny as I say that, our poor UTA team, who are inundated uh, with content, which is brilliant for us. We love that. But be really specific. You know, I think our worst nightmare is at just an email saying, hey, G, see attached. And I'm like, what is that? Is it for France, Spain, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands? What language? What's your thinking of the budget? What genre is it? What audience do you think this is going to attract? I think the more detail you can give us up front, the easier it is for us. Because as we're starting to launch shows, we're being much more specific in the gaps that we have, the audiences that we don't have coming that we want to attract, um, and the types of shows that are working for us. So I would just advise everyone to be really as specific as you can, just to give it the best chance of being um, really looked at in the best way. And then beyond that, you know, all of our local teams have a very different remit as they're growing at different rates and they're putting out different content. Again, in the early days, I used to come here and say we want big and broad and the real mass stuff because the truth is we were experimenting. We wanted to see who, who was going to come in, who was going to buy that subscription and come to the service. And now we started launching shows. It's great because we can now go, oh, okay, well, in this particular territory, we might be missing why a female or a particular demo that we hadn't had before and it's giving us a chance to be that little bit more specific but frustratingly for you all we want to see everything we'll never say no to a particular genre okay. you know I, I don't think anyone can sit here and say we're all doing very unique things all of the broadcasters and streamers we're all looking at you know the same genres ultimately so for us it's about how do you elevate or twist on those or make them feel very different to what's already out there um and I'd also advise people just watch some of our shows. I think now we're launching, people are getting a real sense of us and our personality and the sorts of things we like. And we're definitely quite cheeky and we're quite irreverent. Um, we like to be quite bold. We're not scared to fail. We want to really experiment both in form and with talent. So we're really up for a challenge. So challenge us, please. <laughs> we love that. Okay, so very flexible in terms of um, content ideas. But I mentioned the fact that this is a region that's multilingual and multicultural, but it also is the region where the concept of pan-regional also first started, you know, in terms of television, the MTVs and the CNBCs and all that. So there's a generation that actually thinks, you know, pan-European and... So is it possible for someone in the UK to go to approach your French head of production 
and say, listen, I know France very well, or are they going to hear the English accent and go, no, we need to be speaking to a French person for this idea? No, it's a, we have producers pitching, writers writing from different territories okay. on different shows. Okay. It's a, it, what, it, what it is, when we talk about local, it's about the kind of beating heart of that show. The very DNA of that show has to feel incredibly relevant for that particular territory. Outside of that, you know, I, we have incredible talent crews across the world. You know, we have people from every different territory working on lots of different shows. So it's not specific to who's making it. It's really specific to what's the idea and the content and the ultimate audience it's going to reach. Okay. So, briefly explain how your division might impact or be impacted by other Amazon TV and movie ventures. Mm -hmm. Like the AVOD service, IMDB TV. Mm -hmm. So, um... It's IMDP TV is our kind of premium AVOD service, essentially. So you can, if you go into Prime, you can search on the carousel and you can see that. Um, and you can watch for free, essentially, with ads. Um, that launched in the UK in September, so very recently. Uh, and again, if you want to get in touch with those guys, feel free to email myself and I can get you in touch with them. Um, but we have just, you know, there's so many different, like I said, facets to what we're doing. We have, you know, AVOD, we have our live sports team, who again, we're working very closely with Alex, who runs that for Europe, you know, really boldly came in and quite disruptively said, we want to add an incredible value proposition to our customers. And essentially, for no extra money, you can now watch premium live sports as part of your subscription. And that was a real game changer, I think, okay, in imagine. terms of thinking very differently. And that's also had a knock-on impact in the stuff that we're commissioning, because it's all kind of a bigger flywheel. And, you know, now we've got Dan Grabener, who runs the UK, making some really extraordinary content with our all-or-nothing Tottenham Hotspur, which went out last year, and he's just working now on all-or-nothing Arsenal. Um, and it all goes to feeding this very passionate sports fan base. And also, more broadly than that, people who didn't think they were into sports and watch the content um, you know, the behind the scenes, I suppose, of football and think, oh, actually, this is interesting to me. Absolutely. These emotional stories are not just about, you know, kicking a football on a pitch. And so making a lot of money out of it. Absolutely. And then, as I said, I think what's interesting in our model is we're not just a streamer. We, you know, we have um, the books division, we have Audible, we have Alexa, there's podcasts. There's so many different ways that you can communicate with our company and um, different ways that creators can come in and, and talk to your audience. It's really not a kind of one-size-fits-all, come and make us a TV show. And we're always thinking about that in how we operate. And could you clarify what the situation is about buying MGM for the small sum of $8.45 billion? <laughs> I wish I could. There's very smart people working on this. Um, Yep, so everyone, you've all read the press about the MGM deal and it's going through the current process it is, so I guess it's another watch this space. But, you know, very exciting, two big brands there coming together, so it's very exciting for us. And um, in terms of industry developments, one of the things that it, um, sort of struck me was that, so if you are focusing on originals, mm -hmm. scripted and unscripted, um, you must be keeping an eye on what's happening regarding availability of crew talent, availability of location spaces and studio facilities because all these streaming platforms and also the um, traditional broadcasters, linear broadcasters, are also wanting access to these um, same facilities. Is it of concern that the demand might soon exceed supply to such an extent that you may not be able to keep up with your timetable? Um, in terms of productions? Yeah, I think lots of people are concerned about that. I don't think it's necessarily a new concern, um, and it's something we've all been working on, but 
what we're doing, I suppose, to mitigate a lot of this, and lots of you know this, but we're investing very heavily into the industry, not just in the UK and Europe, but outside of that. So we have a number of training schemes, um, initiatives which we're going to announce next year, which we're very excited about, specifically for the UK, um, as we're here today, where we're looking at exactly that. How can we invest back into the industry to ensure that there are substantial training schemes for cast and crew to be able to facilitate not just Amazon shows, but all of our shows. You know, everyone goes between uh, the broadcasters. And then when it comes to studio space, um, I would say lots more studios are becoming available. Um, and, you know, we take each show one by one. And it's a big part of, for those who work with us, you know this, of the process of green lighting a show. It's not just about the creative, it's how are we physically going to produce this? Where are we going to produce this? So um, a, a lot of work goes into that in Amazon studios in terms of looking around, seeing, you know, where we need to invest um, to support the ecosystem, I suppose. So it's really important for us to be keeping an eye on that. I wouldn't say it's something we're necessarily concerned about now, just seeing our plans and how we're planning to invest back into the industry. But it's certainly something we need to look at. Right. So if you're looking at that, how about also, are you in some ways um, encouraging the service providers to also be training more people if the demand is going to grow? We all need to be. It's all of our responsibilities, I think, to... Um, invest back into the industry, um, to be making sure that we are kind of paving the way for the next generation of talent because, um, you know, without them, we physically can't make shows. It's really important to our lifeblood to make sure that there are, there are suitable casts and crews. But it's also not just focusing on the UK. Lots of, um, lots of shows from all over the world come here. We travel all over the world to shoot lots of our shows. Um, and, and that continues um, to happen. You know, I was really excited to read about... Um, you know, Israel opening up in terms of possible incentives there. It's an amazing place to work. There's fantastic crew there, great talent. So all of these things um, help kind of move the needle in terms of opening up opportunities for us to film with great crews around the world. Which brings me to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so um, that has shifted location from New Zealand to the UK. Can you tell us a bit about where it will be filmed? And I'm presuming your division is going to be roped in to help. <laughs> the wonderful thing about Lord of the Rings is I genuinely haven't been told anything. I'm so <laughs> glad because I, I can sit on things like this and I really don't know. So Lord of the Rings is being run out of our US office um, by Jen Solke, who heads up our creative studios. Um, and all I know about it genuinely is what you know, which is, um, you know, season one is still in production. Um, it won't be going out until uh, next year. So... That's kind of all I know right now. But it also plays into my point prior, which is big shows, whether it's Lord of the Rings or a big Netflix show or Apple shows, lots of shows are coming to the UK because we all recognise the incredible talent um, that is available to us here. But what comes with that is a real critical importance and we're also investing back into that flywheel and helping train up new crews, right? It's important for all of us to be able to continue filming. Um, so, so that is obviously part of the puzzle. Which triggers another question in my mind. You, you are responsible for Europe. Based on what I've been reading, is there a danger that the UK will dominate, and then the English language shows will dominate what is, comes out of Amazon Studios um, Europe? No, I don't mm. think so. I think, you know, if you look at the shows coming out of all of our territories, we have similar volumes coming out of each, and we're really responding to customer demand. So I would expect that to continue okay. to increase. I think we all know that English language content has such a bigger affinity to travel around the world. But the thing I've been really proud of over the last two years, sat in my living room watching our shows go out, um, is that actually lots of our shows are traveling better than even I could have predicted. And I like to pride myself on the fact I know the international market. But 
I always remember when um, LOL launched, which is an amazing format that we have a comedy format in the unscripted space. And we launched it in Italy, Germany, um, Spain, France. And traditionally, I would have sat here and said, you know, German comedy is not that likely to travel, right? That's not something that's going to hit, um, hit particularly wide around the world. Comedy is so specific, which is why it's a really obvious spot to go for local investment and local um, creative. But, you know, what was interesting is we launched those shows. And as we launched those, we saw that kind of ripple effect of the Australian one suddenly popped up and people in Australia suddenly started watching the German one and then people in the US start watching the Italian one. And, and it's really fascinating the kind of... We talk a lot about those talkable shows. It's not just talkable externally. It's kind of our audiences are communicating with each other because, again, the really unique thing about Amazon and lots of talk, people talk about data, how well shows do, you can all see it. Log on look at your star rating and read your customer reviews, right? They're there for everyone to see. And that also means as an audience member, you can log on every night and go, oh, I fancy seeing this show in Italy. Oh, what do you know? It's 4.5 stars. That sounds great. I'll take a look. Okay. So the, the kind of ripple effect of a show like that around the world was really interesting um, to my point. And I don't think it is just about English language anymore. I think really what audiences want is very authentic entertainment um, made to a great quality that they can, they can sit and enjoy. In which case, let's talk about Amazon being, quote unquote, the home for talent, especially new talent. What does that mean in actual practice? So we talk a lot about being the home for talent, and that was something, a kind of vision that Jennifer Solke um, really um, set up when she moved over to us a few years ago. And it's important to say that when we talk about talent, we don't just mean on-screen talent. We talk about that a lot, but it's everything from great DOPs, great writers, great directors, um, that all feeds the machine in terms of making this incredible content. But I think, again, what's unique is our approach is very different to lots of our competitors. We're very, very curated. We are never going to be in the volume game. Um, we want to have a very high ratio of execs to shows. We want to give every show room to breathe, stories, room to grow. We want to give, you know, people the chance to, as I said, twist things, do things differently. And that takes experimentation. Sometimes that means pulling back and rethinking things. So I think that's part of um, the kind of mantra when we talk about home for talent. We want talent to come to us and feel like they have a chance to kind of be themselves, a chance to um, not only work on their passion projects, but work across a multitude of different projects in a lot of different forms, whether that's creating an original show for us, whether that's working with Alexa or Audible or doing a podcast. There's so many different ways that they can get involved. We don't get too hung up on kind of form. We're very um, agnostic. You know, someone can pitch an idea and we might go, you're pitching that as an unscripted show, but have you thought this could be a really fantastic topic for a movie? Or maybe we should be doing the podcast. There's so many ways now that you can feed content. And I think what's, again, very unique is when talent come in and work, they're working with some multiple layers. And that adds such a richness in terms of how they're engaging with their audiences and their fan base. It's fantastic for our customers who get to engage at a deeper level with the talent. So there's this really lovely kind of flywheel effect going on when we talk about um, being the home for talent. Your company has been loud and clear about reflecting diversity, equity and inclusion on and behind the screen. Again, what exactly does that mean in practice? So diversity is something that we as a kind of content team are incredibly passionate about. And we ingrained that in our DNA very early. And I think we were very privileged 
you know, we are, I suppose, one of the younger players on the market. We've seen lots of people come and go before us. So it's been really interesting for us to, to learn from what has and hasn't worked previously. And when we started, I think what was critical to us was this has to be baked in from day one. Diversity can't be something that we get to green light and go, okay, what's, what's the angle here, right? It has to come from the very inception of the idea and we have to work with um, creatives who also share our passion in this space. So what I will say is diversity for us, I suppose, falls into three buckets. Like you said, there's kind of the on-screen side, which sounds very obvious and I think there's the obvious... Um, you know, getting that on-screen talent representation. But I think we're trying to go a step beyond that, which is how do we actually invest into the industry to find those new upcoming diverse talent coming through? And again, I'm aware it's a real luxury. You know, we, we don't have advertisers to appease. We're, we're a company that can kind of really experiment um, and fail. And we're very proud of that. And it means that we can be very bold in what we do. So um, a great example is something called Jungle. This show came to us um, as a kind of 10 minute uh, short, I guess. And we were just so blown away by this, really blown away. It's incredibly special, it's incredibly unique. Um, the best way to describe it, although I can see Johnny saying terrible pitch, is that it is kind of a grime musical. <laughs> um, it completely bends any form of any TV show you've ever really seen before. So it's incredibly experimental. But actually beyond all of that, what really just got us excited at the time was the idea that it was a group of people who'd really never made TV before. So instantly going into that, we were thinking, this is um, backing really brand new producerial talent. And then the on-screen representation, you know, it's working um, with grime artists who've never been in front of a camera before, been part of that process before, and how we've kind of given that show a huge amount of space just to be and work out what it actually is and give them a chance because it requires you know, a lot more time when you're working on set with people who haven't necessarily been through this process before. So when we think of on screen, it's not just the obvious of kind of, you know, make sure we're ticking boxes. It's like, how can we go a step further and actually start to source and uncover that new talent? Um, another great example is, you know, in Italy, we have a show coming up I'm very proud of called Bang Bang Baby. Um, and for that, you know, the, the production company kind of went to the streets to cast. And that show is probably one of the longest shows we've had in development and production for that reason. They took such a long time to really carefully and in a very considered manner go to the streets in certain regions in Italy to cast in a very diverse and authentic way versus just kind of ringing up an agent and saying, you know, this is what we need. And I think it's that care and attention that maybe makes these shows feel very special to me. Um, and then flipping that, you know, there's the off-screen angle. I know I've said this multiple times, but we... we really will not even go into development unless people are on the same page in terms of our um, diversity asks. And, you know, I, I always say it up front, you know, we carve out budget um, for stepping up schemes, for initiatives, but we will not be developing anything unless a production company is prepared to do that with us from the very beginning. For us, diversity has to be baked in as a very natural part of a show, not something that's kind of pegged on at the end to tick some boxes. It feels very inauthentic. Audiences see completely through that. So from an off-screen perspective, we do a lot of stepping up, a lot of training schemes. As I said, we're going to be announcing some more holistic training schemes next year, which are very exciting. Um, but, you know, I think lots of you know we work very closely um, on the Devil's Hour, which we're just making with Hartswood with screen skills. Um, we learned a lot when we worked with the BBC and co-produced Small Axe and entered into a stepping up scheme with them. Um, so all of our shows have that angle and that is kind of non-negotiable. When we work with you, we will expect you to kind of partner with us on that journey. And then the other part of diversity, which 
I think really important for us is just our own internal diversity, right? So um, I was very proud in the UK, we set up our first um, apprenticeship scheme. Um, and we're giving um, people not only incredible access to the industry and kind of on the ground training, they're not just working on Amazon shows, they're working on a multitude of shows across all the different broadcasters, but we are funding that and they are housed within Amazon Studios. But they're also getting this incredible access to a really broad network. So our apprentices a couple of weeks ago sat down with Mike Hopkins and Jen Sulkey. So that kind of you know, the kind of network that I would have dreamed of having <laughs> at 21, we're giving people the opportunity to have um, and expect a lot more of that from us is what I would say. Well, listen, Georgia Brown, um, thank you so much thank you. for um, sharing the Amazon story at this latest stage um, with everybody at Content London. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> Georgia Brown speaking with Hannah Flint. You can hear the full version of that interview by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station or watch the video on c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber. US factual giant Discovery launched SVOD service Discovery Plus a year ago and has already signed up more than 18 million customers. The company, which subsequently announced a $43 billion merger with Warner Media, continues to commission and acquire shows for its substantial portfolio of linear networks, but is making an aggressive push into originals for its standalone streamer. Discovery, EMEA and APAC Group Vice President of Content and Acquisitions, Miriam Lopez-Utazu, Discovery UK Head of Factual Simon Downing and Head of Entertainment Claire Laycock spoke to Clive Whittingham about these moves. The trio explained how they decide what programming is best suited to online versus linear, the genres they're especially keen on, and the scope for the kind of shows that will resonate on both a local and international level. So, guys, who are you and what are you doing here? Let's start with that. Miriam, why don't you define your role at, uh, at Discovery for the, for the guys that have joined us today? I'll try to be brief with that as well so that people don't think we're complicated. So um, my name is Miriam Lopez-Otazu. I run kind of primarily sourcing and acquisition, so super serving these guys or kind of buying through a fantastic team for Linear and uh, Discovery Plus internationally, primarily EMEA focused, and then some uh, planning and commissioning um, across the markets like uh, anything that is multi-market and formats. Simon. Hi, um, Simon Downing. I head up um, factual commissioning for for the UK. Um, I also have another hat, which is marketing, which we won't get into today, <laughs> uh, which consumes me. Um, but on the factual side, uh, my role is very much um, commissioning for all of our platforms. Um, certainly this year has been very much focused on Discovery Plus, um, but we also commission for our linear free-to-airs and our pay channels as well. And Claire? Yeah, and so like Simon, I uh, head up content strategy and commissioning for lifestyle and entertainment across the portfolio, so Linear and Discovery Plus. And when we say entertainment and discovery, it's, you know, unscripted entertainment. Um, and I also head up planning and insights, um, which is about scheduling and data insights, which is the second hat I wear, which is not relevant today. So Discovery Plus uh, launched nearly a year ago, coming upon your first birthday and 20 million subs, so that's clearly going well. Uh, how has it changed the game for, for you guys in your role uh, as, as commissioners? I don't know who wants to, to tackle that. I mean, it, it, it's changed it massively, as, as Simon said, in that, you know, we still commission for our linear channels. You know, we have free-to-air channels that are very hungry for content and pay channels. But Discovery Plus has come along, as you say, a year old in the UK, um, launched last November. 
and a whole new budget and a whole new uh, commissioning brief and a very hungry and successful product for content. So, um, yeah, we, we're now working on a lot of really exciting projects for, for Discovery+. Plus. What's the target audience for it? Is it different from your, from your linear channels? Who's, what have you learned from your subscribers so far? Who's, who's watching? Well, I think, yeah, as you'll see, not just with Discovery+, Plus, but generally with streaming, is that um, you do tend to target a younger demo. Um, and actually, for us, it's really interesting because we, we operate over an ecosystem. So we have linear channels and we have Discovery+. Plus. So actually, where historically we thought a lot of our content was just old, um, it's actually the, the consequence of the platform that you, you play that content on. But certainly within Discovery+, Plus, we're seeing a, a much younger cohort coming to our content and enjoying content um, that historically has played on linear do really well. Um, so actually, we are seeing quite a broad, across our ecosystem, a really quite broad um, makeup of, uh, of, of audience demo. And how, how are you distinguishing it from the many, many competitors, large and small, factual, drama-focused, everyone has a streamer now? How, does, how are you guys making yours stand out from the competition? I guess I, I'll, I'll take this one in one way. It's like I think there's probably three things that are quite unique. One is like we're probably the only um, single kind of destination for unscripted real-life entertainment and sports that is in the market. So in one way, we tend to say that we are one of one. There's not many kind of only um, like singular destination for unscripted, which is great because it's a great, very simple proposition for the consumer. Um, I think it's like we have a scale uh, uniquely in both linear, as we were saying, and direct to consumer. So we really complement, we have, we're present in 135 countries. Uh, we have a heritage of more than 30 years. So when people talk here about the streamers and how they're trying to move to a local offering, we've been local for quite a long time from a language offering perspective, but also from a commissioning perspective. So I think that is very important for us to have those local relationships, those touch points with those consumers on a daily basis. Also because we are live, so we can react fast to trends and we can see what is captivating the, the attention to the consumers each place. And, and I guess finally it's like we, we compete. I think we don't really try to compete with other streamers or even with ourselves in the portfolio. So we are really complementary to what's out there. So One of the, the strengths of the Discovery Linear channels has always been a really, really clearly defined brand. If you put Investigation <laughs> Discovery on, you know exactly what you're going to get when you, when you look at that channel. How have you been able to broaden that out with the streamer? What are you commissioning and acquiring now? What are you in the market for now that you maybe weren't more than a year ago? Um, well, I think it's interesting because, yes, we've, we've had this portfolio of linear channels, as you say, very clearly branded. The audiences for those channels know what they are, know what they want. And then Discovery Plus comes along. And people, Discovery is a very well-known brand. People have an expectation of what to get from it, but it's actually the offering is much broader than the traditional view maybe that some people have about discovery. So um, we have, we've had to focus on what, what's going to make people put their money in, their hand in their pocket to pay. We want subscribers. So um, this is about premium content that people feel like they want to pay for. Um, but, but across all our very, you know, there's like more than 30 genres, I think, within sort of the unscripted world that we occupy. So we've kind of looked across all of those genres and what we've seen on Discovery Plus is there's a kind of handful of those have really risen to the top. So that's where we've been focusing our effort. And those are things like crime, paranormal, reality, um, sort of fact end and, and factual, like celeb-led factual series. 
It's great news for producers and distributors to have a, a new factual buyer with deep pockets and a broad range. The Discovery Linear channels were also an important <coughs> buyer in, in individual territories, like you say, commissioned a lot locally. Has it taken away from the linear channels? Like We've got a now a broad international thing to pitch into, but we can't get our thing away with Discovery Italy in the same way as we maybe did before. How, what impact does it have on the linear channel? I think it's, you know, I think certainly over the last 12 months, there's no question that we've absolutely leaned into um, launching Discovery Plus, and that's really been our entire editorial focus. Um, you know, and as I said, we've had huge success this year in terms of driving um, our sub-base. Um, having said that, um, linear is massively important. I think we're a business, we're not, it's not a zero-sum game. We're not just about SPOD, we're very much about linear as well. And I think linear plays a very important role, um, not only for, um, for, the, for, for linear ad sales, but the fact is a lot of the content that you commission for linear has a really important role to play within, um, within Discovery Plus as well. Because once you've got people into a service, you need to really drive your engagement. Value comes from the frequency that anyone will use your product. So having content that can work, have a dual purpose is incredibly important. And I think certainly when we start looking at 22, I think that broader kind of ecosystem is very much going to be front of mind when we start looking at commissioning. So but it's useful to say, just to reassure people, that the Discovery Plus budget was in addition. So the linear budget is still there. It hasn't decreased. In fact, it's growing. And the Discovery Plus budget is additional. So it's not God gives a buyer with one hand and takes away with the, no, with the other? No. Um, historically, we've, commissioning for linear, we've really been kind of deep and narrow in terms of our editorial. We've really looked at specialists. We've really looked at process. And if you look at both Discovery you look at Quest and those male-focused channels, it, it very much is about either getting under the bonnet or following a particular process. One of the things that we've learned through Discovery Plus is that actually you can cast your net much wider if your factual becomes a little bit more lifestyle-led. We've seen this with Richard Hammond's workshop, which we launched on Discovery Plus, which has really landed fantastically well for us. But it wasn't an under-the-bonnet show. That was a show that was very much about... Richard Hammond starting a business, actually the next chapter of his life, and it's about his family and, and, and business. So that's worked really well, and it just resonates with a wider audience. Uh, and with that in mind, I think that leads very much into Full Metal Junkies. So, so this is a process show in terms of it's, it's, a, it's a company that are based in Surrey, but they do these most amazing transformations, whether it's office refits or converting vehicles. But at the same time, there's a huge amount of tomfoolery that goes on. So it's very much like a gang show. And the fact is that this would happen whether the cameras were there or not. So it's purely authentic. There's no contrivance in here at all. And there's a wonderful camaraderie and chemistry between all of the people that work here. So this is a show that's actually we've commissioned for Linear, but it's got a very, very broad appeal. And I think that's where we want to start leaning into in terms of how we take our factual content, content forward. So, um, so if, you can, if you can be specific about what you're looking for, what, what attracted you to that? Was it the, the job, the talent? You know, what what well, got the green light from you for the, that? The easy answer is all of it, really. I think, you know, if you want to go broad, you've just got to, you've got to find characters and stories that really have lots of layers, that give lots of people uh, a different entry point into the, into the editorial. Um, that isn't a straightforward conversion show, but there is a payoff in every single episode. Um, and I think... 
for us, as we move forward, that becomes an interesting template for us to have a commissioning discussion around, is how can you take um, you know, what could potentially be a process-led show and turn it into something which actually feels much more accessible and actually leads to a more co-view audience as well. We don't want to create a kind of a male, um, you know, a, a, a kind of just a, a male domain we want something that just feels accessible to everybody so i think looking at this kind of what i call lifestyle led factor if there is such a thing um i mean that's a very very interesting area for us as we as we move forward um but certainly we're not just limiting ourselves to, to that particular genre you know increasingly we still are looking for ideas for discovery plus as well um investigative documentaries have been um, incredibly successful um over the last year um, we launched with a series um, on Estonia, which was that tragedy in 1994 when 852 people died. Um, and this story was about the lead up to that and the actual um, sinking of that ship. And there was much more to the story than was originally thought. And it really generated a huge amount of noise. So I think in the investigative documentary space, we're very keen on looking at, uh, at, um, at those kinds of stories. But they really have to have something that is, is uh, that challenges the audience's preconceptions. Uh, it's something I didn't know that. Um, and then outside of that, the other area that we're looking at that continues to perform incredibly well for us is just what we call extreme jobs, which is a discovery word for anything where someone's got a hard hat and a beard and a pickaxe. Um, but those kind of shows work very well. And actually, um, global stories, um, because they all, they're all based on universal truth about people trying to make their way in life. Um, so I think those are the kind of areas that we're, that we're leaning into at the moment, but not exclusively so. Um, we also would say that uh, we're not just a pure inbox commissioner, uh, commissioning team. So we really like to work with partners to, to collaborate and really build ideas as well. That is one of the questions that's coming on Slido, actually. Does, uh, do you come in at the development stage with indie producers? I mean, what stage of the, the process do you want to come in at? I mean, you know, it's, I think it's, uh, we're incredibly flexible. Um, so, you know, we can look at, at, at full, fully formed treatments or in some, some instances, actually in the case of uh, Full Metal Junkies, that came through is just literally we've met these guys and the, the conversation developed very much between the commissioning team and the production company. So, you know, even if there's a kernel of an idea, um, you know, we have a development team in-house and we are happy to work with partners to really cultivate those ideas into something that excites us all. Is there something you get pitched a lot that it just isn't for you? Um, yes. Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, it's interesting, actually, um, particularly in the sports documentary space, um, we have... When we kind of opened up um, at the beginning of um, at the beginning of last year, talking about what we were looking for, there was a slew of um, treatments around sports, and we love sports documentaries, but they're really hard. They're really hard, to, firstly, to make, <laughs> um, but they're really hard to cut through as well. Everyone talks about documentaries as being a kind of mainstay of of, a, of an SVOD offering. Um, where people say they really want them, to get them to really resonate and cut through um, is actually a little bit more challenging. So I'd say that's an area that we've, um, that we're not saying no, but it's really hard. So we're quite, there's trepidation yeah. around that. And the other thing, just a final point before I shut up is on, um, on topicals as well. Um, we've looked at a couple of different, um, trying to jump on the back of news stories. And I think they're really hard. And it might be the fact that we're still, you know, a nascent service. Um, and we don't, we're not sitting on a 12 million sub base, but, but those are particularly hard to cut through as well.
maybe those are kind of good spaces for us to team up with them and maybe acquire. So rather than maybe having to fully commission and react to, it's like in order to be fast and a bit sidelisty, we can we can always acquire, which is something that we do. Claire, I'm basically going to ask you all the same questions, um, but why don't you Not tell really us about um, Johnny versus Amber and how it speaks to the work and the commissioning that you're looking to do? Okay, sure, yeah. So uh, Johnny versus Amber is a two-part feature on Discovery Plus from Optimum, and this was us um, tapping into that kind of massive interest around um, that court case. So Johnny Depp took the son to court to the High Court for calling him a wife beater and Amber had to appear and it was a real, you know, that their, their story played out in court and across the headlines. So we've gone into that in real detail. We've got access to both their barristers, you know, their friends, all the footage that was shown in court as evidence, you know, they recorded themselves, all their text messages. It's horrific, actually. Um, and we, one part is telling the story from Johnny's point of view and the second programme is from Amber's point of view. And it's just something that I think we're really excited about. It, it just, it taps into something that, that we're all very intrigued about, but also a really important, you know, the subject of domestic violence um, is something that we want to um, definitely spotlight and um, hear more about. With that and, and the true crime that, that Discovery does for, for ID, um, it's often violence against women. It's the world that we live in, sadly. How do you not do it in an exploitative way, if, you, if the question makes sense. How do you go about approaching topics like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, not all our stuff is about that, um, but I think it's, it's about making sure that we are having the right... We've got integrity at the heart of it. We're working with the right programme makers. You know, Optimum have done an incredible job with that. Um, we don't go into these things lightly. It's not about the sensationalism. It's about trying to give people the facts behind what they're reading in you know, a one-line tabloid, tabloid headline. Um, what we've found with Discovery Plus is that these specials, um, the, the consumers of the audience have a real appetite for these. They can, they can go quite dark. So our most popular, I think, thing on Discovery Plus UK to date is um, a Jimmy Savile faking it special. So we have an ongoing franchise faking it where we have our experts analyzing past footage and looking at the tells that, that would give away somebody's guilt. Um, and so digging into the Jimmy Savile, all the footage over the years of him, you know, it's a horrific story. We talk to the victims. It's, it's really moving. It's really troubling. But it's something that people are absolutely fascinated by and need to know. And what we found with that show particularly, it started off with a kind of older audience, the people that know. We've all grown up with Jimmy Savile. But actually, it then um, became very popular with a much younger audience um, who didn't really had heard something about him but didn't know the story and were just horrified that this all went on in kind of living memory. If I'm a producer coming to pitch you, what do I need to do? What are the, what are the do's and don'ts? What are you, what are you missing? Somebody on, on Silo says, I'm coming to pitch you tomorrow. What should I do? Um, I think decide, work out whether you're pitching us for the linear channels and, and which channels you're pitching or for Discovery+. Plus. Um, if you're not sure, then talk to us anyway and we can help you with that. Um, it's we, like Simon said, we're really flexible. So, you know, you could have an amazing bit of access. You could have an amazing bit of talent or you could have a fully fledged idea. Um, just send us a note, talk to us um, and we can take it from there. And, and how is that focus different? Like, like you say, you work out whether you're pitching to Linear or yeah. Discovery Plus. I mean, how, how do I go about doing that? Simply, it's about understanding, knowing our linear portfolio of channels. What we look for in linear, we tend to commission series, so volume series rather than one-offs or short series, 
because in linear, it's all about trying to build those franchises that can roll around again and again and, you know, go into multiple series. We also have a tariff-based commissioning system on linear, so the budgets are smaller on linear than they are on the SVOD. Um, at SVOD, we're much more flexible with shapes, you know, specials, um, two, three-parters. If they bring people in, if they're epic enough, then absolutely we're interested in those as well. Is there examples of stuff that you can give us that have worked well for, for you and your commissioning and often more interesting, but maybe more reluctant to say stuff that hasn't worked as well? Yeah, everything works. Like um, I mean, look, re recent things on Discovery Plus that have worked super well. So Annie, the honeymoon murder. So um, this dropped about three weeks ago on the product. So this is the incredible story. I'm sure people remember of Annie Diwani and her husband, Shrien, who were on honeymoon in Cape Town and she was tragically murdered and that case has always had a load of questions um, around it. So Annie's family still don't feel they have the answers they want. So um, Firecracker did a brilliant job. It was a four-part uh, documentary series looking into that case, talking to everybody who was there in the room, um, just trying to figure out actually what, what the story was with that. So that's worked brilliantly. Mentor in the series Children of the Cult, five-part series, again, fascinating, dark, um, horrifying um, but really gripping story about um, this global cult that's actually still around. Um, and then on linear, things that have worked really well, STV's The Yorkshire Auction House is a, is a franchise which is coming back, which is, which is just joyful and wonderful and, and really successful on really. The Bad Skin Clinic is um, a, a Quest Red series. It's in its fourth series now from Full Fat. So there's some good returners there in linear as well that we're focusing on. I've got in my notes, baby killer conspiracy. Yeah. So Why don't you tell us about that? Baby killer conspiracy. Talking of, talking of Cheerful difficult content. stories, um, uh, which I think we, we do really well. So this has come from Caravan. And it's the story, it's a two-parter, and it's the story of um, terrible miscarriages of justice that have happened against women who've lost babies through cot death or, or SIDS. Um, and um, so Angela Canning was a very... Um, big noisy case in the UK but there are women all over the world who have been wrongly imprisoned for this and it was all based on the um, flawed expert witness of Professor Meadows, Professor Roy Meadows who coined Meadows Law and his theory was basically that you know to lose one baby is an accident, to lose two babies is suspicious and to lose three is murder. Um, it was completely bogus but women are still being imprisoned um, on the basis of that law so this is a really um, fascinating a sort of semi-investigative piece um, about that um, and it's something that we worked with Miriam and her group on to um, so that we could co-fund it across discovery across globally and it's dropped all around the world. Miriam I'm going to I'm going to turn to you to, to talk more about discovery plus but just a general question and sort of take away from the clips we've seen so far are you guys deliberately going a bit harder hitting than maybe discovery might have done before? In terms of like, like documentaries like that look um, sort of more serious than what I would have maybe seen on Discovery Channel. But, um, no, there's a mix, sorry to jump yeah. in, but there, there's a mix. What we sh we're just focusing on the ones that have just dropped, which happen to be in that area. But we do paranormal, we do reality, you know, we do food and property. So there's a whole breadth of stuff. Miriam, producers coming to pitch, what do they need to, to know uh, about about you? I guess it's just, um, I think it's like we work super closely with the market. So I think from a production point of view, our entry are those kind of commissioning groups within the market. So if you have an amazing story um, or talent or access or format that is kind of for Italy, you can go to the Italian team and then kind of, um, um, and the same for the Swedish team or kind of our Norwegian or the UK. So I think our commissioning 
entry point is always kind of the commission in markets and leads. Um, but then we, I think, from my team point of view, is like what we tend to do is like um, either partner on stories that we believe from the upfront could have global potential or international potential and they might need, I don't know, archive clearances, um, I don't know, a different way of storytelling after in a reversioning point of view because of legal um, specific <laughs> compliances that, um, that might need to be taken into consideration, particularly with kind of true crime, um, you might need to, to have different regulations taken into, into account. And, and then I guess the other, the other part where we come across is sometimes it happens that we don't have the rights in the UK for something because it's gone to a terrestrial or to a competitor. Um, and I guess it's like when you also can come to us as a team and think, okay, um, and some of the examples we have. So we've seen a lot of success with formats and tapes that were originated in Channel 4 or Sky or, um, I don't know, 5. And then we think we love those, we can acquire the tape, we can concept proof something and roll it as a UK version test and then do a local version later that is very important for us. So I think that um, opportunity to also work with discovery internationally and anemia through also things that are with competitors here is, is an important one when, when my team comes across. Yes, you've picked up Naked Attraction, haven't you, which I never thought Discovery would ever do. Why, why have you done that? Because we love it. So uh, we probably didn't have a linear brand for it to play in the past, or maybe not a linear brand across so many markets. Channel 4 actually proved that it can come back and come back and come back, something that I personally have discussed many times. I think all three are around. So I never thought that you could make it so successful and returnable, but it's diverse. It kind of illustrates and portrays kind of cultural um, 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 image of a country. I think you have a great possibility of bringing kind of race, sex, uh, fun. So yeah, Discovery Plus felt a great opportunity to test it. Um, it worked really well for us as a tape in Italy, I think first, I think Isabel and the team picked it up there. Um, we reacted fast to that. We had the option on the markets and we've done quite a few local versions of it in Finland, uh, Norway, Spain, so rolling. So we like <coughs> local nakedness as well as kind of British one. So what, um what else, um, what else are you in the market for? It's not all formats and, and naked people, surely? No, but we do like naked people. Okay, too. good. It's just, uh, no, I guess it's, uh, I think it's like, we, we always say often is just what Claire was saying, Discovery Plus offers primarily because we have that plus, so it's much more than maybe what people kind of would expect from us traditionally on linear. Um, we can be younger and edgier, and um, we've seen loads of, and scripted is very broad, so we don't really want to say, oh, we are only for reality, we're only for dating, we're only for crime. So I think it's more about how you're telling the stories, there are unique angles to come and unique talent. I think local is very important for us, so it's always been very important because we have very big commercial broadcasters uh, in market, so when you have a scale, I don't know, we're the biggest commercial broadcaster in, in Poland through TVN and number third biggest largest commercial group in, in Italy and number one, two in the Nordics. I think you're always trying to be kind of ahead of the trend too and bring your viewers something that is surprising. Um, but local is keen for us. So I think formats play a great opportunity, that combination of maybe something that is incredibly compelling in English can serve as a, as a 
taste and then as, um, as a proof of concept as I was saying and then we localize so formats are important then obviously linear brands are also hungry so complementing um, in the usual more discovery traditional spaces continues to be important zeitgeist maybe as um, someone was saying that I think singular documentaries are sometimes hard to make work but uh, we've seen some success in quite a few territories on things that are maybe, I don't know, a framing Britney Spears for me. It's just as an example. It's like something that is trendy, psygeisty, reactive. I think in the market we'll always want to be um, having an opportunity to acquire those. Uh, originals v acquisitions. How does it divide up? What's the ratio? Bit of both. Um, obviously, we have an amazing slate of originals also coming from the US and we work hard to make those work. Um, and then we partner with the markets in, in those co-creations. So um, commissions and having an offer of discovery plus originals are important. It's, it's what defines you as a, as, a, as a product and that's what people probably subscribe for. But, um, but acquisitions are great for us to test the spaces, to enlarge kind of the offering is like maybe we'll do a few commissions on, on the featured documentary so we see some incredible stories coming from the US I don't know, introducing Selma Blair or uh, Francesco or Estonia and but then we might need more volume so I think acquisitions is always a great balance to um, to be fast and do volumes and and they're good for quotas that I think people I haven't heard many people talking about it here but I think the UK for us as a market is very important obviously complies we have very deep library of US content and as a streamer you obviously need to comply with European regulations so acquisitions are good for us in that respect too so UK originated ideas are good. One from uh, Slido uh, if something's working well for discovery in a particular territory uh, is there a greater chance I presume yes uh, of it being picked up in the UK and wider EMEA you are looking for stuff that that can travel. We have an example, True Love. Why don't you use that to? to yeah. So we we are as much as obviously as kind of um, we've seen. There is really brand equity in formats, and and I'm a huge advocate of like something that has been a proven success, and you can maybe <coughs> react to it at the back of a commission, maybe have an option or try to do it in other markets. But we've also put a lot of effort internally in developing in the spaces that work for us. Dating and love is one where we've seen a lot of success. Um, it's really important for our service in the Nordics, and we always say that winter always comes down, so winter is coming, trends come from the north. We've seen reality and dating coming down. And, and last year, I think in some of these sessions that we have internally, we decided that we didn't see maybe enough formats in the dating space that we wanted, so we put our hats together and someone in the development team in, in the Swedish team um, had this idea. We took it to a producer. We've been developing and we are launching in Sweden first. Uh, it's called True Love. And the ambition will be to use that Swedish version as a first kind of proof of concept. And hopefully if it works, maybe see any traveling in other markets. Five <laughs> minutes to go. Uh, let's rattle through some of the questions that have come in on Slido. And I'm really impressed by the quality of them, to be honest, guys, you should be up here. Um, there is an elephant in the room. It's the Warner Media merger, potentially merging all of this with HBO Max. I'm sure you're going to straight back this. Um, but with the Discovery merger, how do you see your content and platform integrating with Warner Media's HBO Max? Who wants to grasp that net? I mean, it's, uh, there's nothing we can say around that at the moment, uh, mainly because we don't know. Um, I think the most important message is that it remains business as usual. 
I guess it's like, just to add a little bit, it's like, in one way, it's like we as executives are, ex are super excited to, be, to bring the companies together. I think that's, we, we can't lie. And the regulatory kind of time frame is going as we are expecting. So we'll hopefully I'll be one, one company, but it's so early to, to discuss kind of strategy and things like that. But yeah, business as usual from our side, 100%. There you go, guys. You can't accuse me of not asking. Um, <laughs> who is your main competitor and worry? Is it, is it Netflix or is it the local streamers? Who do you guys see as, as the I mean, main I, competitor? I think, it's, I think it's all of them, basically, because you can't, you know, Netflix is obviously the monster as in terms of it's got, just got that scale. Um, but it's all of them. And I think, and, and we're competing not just with streamers, we're competing with, you know, with YouTube and with linear TV and with, you know, everything. So um, that's why it's just super important that the content that we have on Discovery Plus feels like it stands up, that it, that it breaks out, that it creates noise, that people talk about it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough old market. And I think just with my marketing hat on, I think it's, um, it's incredibly important in a market which is congested. We're all competing for time. It's about having a very, very clear proposition. I think Claire touched upon that earlier. Um, and, and Miriam talked about the fact that, you know, we're in this, in this non-scripted space and we've carved out a reputation. Um, and actually, we've got a very clear point of difference. And I think that's uh, a, a, a great place to start. And then all of these content proof points to support that positioning really help. But it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's tough. We can I think Netflix said that their biggest competitor was sleep. And that's true, because you're really competing <laughs> for time. <laughs> Uh, this is a horrible question, might be one for your marketing uh, hat again. If you could compare Discovery Plus to any high street brand, what would it be? That is a marketing away day question. Oh, and, yeah. Do you want me to take that Yeah, one? <laughs> <laughs> We'd probably all say very different <coughs> answer though. Absolute hospital pass. I, I, look, I, I, I don't want to get caught into like, drawing analogies with high street brands. Um, but the <laughs> fact is that, you know, I think we are... Um, we're very we're like a department store in that respect. I think the fact is we've got a huge depth of library, um, and I think the important thing for us is about commissioning content that unlocks that library. So I don't know what the, the, the shop is, but it's really important that we've got fantastic window dressing. Yeah, and Discovery is a super beloved brand. That's the reality. We have a lot of awareness in every market. It's, an, it's kind of, it allows you to, yeah, I think people relate Discovery with authenticity and real and truth, and so in one way it's like, whichever the brand that is in your market, and maybe, I think when you go to a place and it's like, oh, I work for Discovery, you have to explain, but it's, it's really, truly a love brand, and that's a, it's a good place for us to be. You, you mentioned the quotas, which, which prevent you just <coughs> whacking the US content uh, out, but you do have some very successful uh, program brands in the US, and we, we all know the names, multiple series. Um, do producers come pitching you local versions of those, like I've got a pimple popper in Leeds, or should they do that? Do they do that? Are you looking for I mean, local we're, versions I'd of I'd say US we're probably ahead, ahead of that, because obviously if there's a big successful US, we've already discussed local, you know, the options for local content. So um, it's probably not worth them coming and saying, I can do, I've got UK pimple popper. We've got the Bad Skin Clinic in season four. Now that's basically our response to that. But, you know, it's definitely worth looking at what's working yeah. um, from Either, the US content. Yeah, And we've done localizations as well, saying yes yeah. to the dress, has travelled really well in local. We, we've got 90 Day Fiancé UK in production right now. 
But it's probably not the best idea for me to come and pitch it because as you own it, you've already had that, you're already ahead of that Probably idea. we have, yeah. We'll have come to you and asked you to, to work. To do it for us, yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your time. Guys, thanks for the questions thank as you. well. They were really good. Thank you. Miriam Lopez-Utazu, Simon Downing and Claire Laycock speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning in to the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. 